0: Hi, this is Hitam Patel, Global Head of Financial Infrastructure Technology and Services at Oliver Wyman. Today's guest is Maroon Ede, the CEO of Murex. For those of you who list capital markets software providers as a hobby or interest, then Maroon and Murex need no introduction. But for those who are less familiar, Murex is a financial software company and industry leader in providing software that allows banks and asset managers to trade derivatives. Unlike many other financial software companies, Murex and Maroon have shunned what must have been an endless barrage of offers from private equity firms and retained independent ownership. This is the Innovators' Exchange. Welcome to the show. It's and Patel. I am delighted to have with me today, Maroon Ede, CEO of Murex. Thank you for joining us, Maroon.
1: My pleasure and good day, everyone.
0: It'd be great to start with a little bit of background
1: Yes, with pleasure. Uh, Murex is a software house, which is a little bit more than 30 years old, uh, which is specialized in um, managing trading, uh, risk management, uh, operations, settlements, funding, for capital markets in general across asset classes and functions. Asset classes being interest rate, foreign exchange, uh, commodities, equities, uh, or credit, and the functions, I listed a few of them. We uh, are present in uh, something like 20 countries with our offices, but we have clients in uh, 60 countries, essentially all the financial places, which has reasonably evolved capital markets. Uh, Our clients are mainly uh, banks, uh, but also uh, investment managers and a few corporations. Wind the tape for me back a bit, you
0: say 30 years ago. Talk to me a little bit about what the journey was like at the start. How did it come about?
1: Yes. In the early 90s, capital markets and particularly derivatives were a little bit like a gold rush uh, where everybody had to run uh, very fast to be able to grab some uh, market share and along the way inventing different products. And obviously at that time, portable computing became uh, very handy that it became uh, standard and we started developing tools for traders, essentially. Uh, I happened to be one of them before I uh, switched to to Murex and these tools uh, were there to provide real-time calculations which in those days were not common with uh, very heavy uh, mathematical formulas but still real-time calculations in order to be able to price and hedge very quickly and it's this very strong development in the us uh, in the uk then in continental europe and then in uh, asia pacific which led to the development of murex Little by little, of course, what was a tool for traders became a vertically integrated platform, front to back office. And since the financial crisis of 2008, it became a front to back to risk, to funding a platform, aggregating all these functions to make them consistent.
0: Awesome. Awesome. at what stage on that journey did you know you were going to win? At what stage do you start to get a sense that, that you have a winning product or so this is going to be something that's going to be a real success?
1: I think if you ever think that you won it means that you're dead. <laughs> the you know the the challenges are um ahead. Uh, I think that going back to the past and uh, being satisfied with uh, what can be interpreted as a victory is not necessarily the healthiest way of doing things. The more so that our field is um changing all the time at a pace which is uh, dizzying sometimes because it's at the intersection of technology, which is, uh, I'm not going to have to explain that, you know it better than I do, which is changing fundamentally all the time and now more than any time in the past. Uh, And capital markets, which have been moving quite a lot. And I would say capital markets are moving to triple extent on one hand, because you have to move to something industrial where you start building as a bank, for instance, uh, building your capital market products distributing them at uh, with an industrial scale so you have a lot of automation from a business point of view you constantly have evolutions you see for instance recently commodity derivatives have been booming Whereas a few years back, lots of banks closed these activities because they were consuming too much capital. And finally, you have regulations and the regulations should not be understood as simply an end game where you have to produce a report. Regulations have changed the way capital markets operate. So you find the effect of regulations everywhere from pricing to risk management and down to the the operations. So the reality is that you can never say that you won and you always have to look forward to the next challenge. This said, to answer your question, there's a very good measure, which is that if people buy your software, which obviously is a good one, but also uh, you feel very quickly if you're capable of resolving uh, a problem and uh, and helping your clients expand their uh, their business. And you feel in a certain way in this field if you're competitive quite quickly, because the market is very differentiated. Clients do not buy only on price. Of course, price is always an element. They price on the quality of the product and they price uh, today also, you know, they decide and choose you today on the quality of your product today and on the roadmap equally. And step after step, you know, I could go back to Decade to tell you what were the, uh, the particular elements which allowed us to get new clients. What I would simply say is that... Um, you have to have a view on where capital markets and technology are going and if you're right you sort of feel it because uh, uh, you feel it in an rfp you feel it in a presentation capital markets our clients are very direct and they don't like to waste time so you know if we're totally off the chart we know it quickly and uh, if we have something to say they listen and we know it quickly also Awesome.
0: Awesome. I, I love that drive and that mindset. I lazily assumed having you, you know 30 years in the game and uh, lots of people giving you plaudits that you may have uh, started to rest on your laurels. That's a fool me for thinking that. And uh, I, I love, the, love the energy. Talk to me a little bit. You've teed me up nicely here. Talk to me a little bit around this next wave of opportunity and challenges as you see it. There's obviously a a ton going on out there that we see. Obviously, generative AI, most recently, the blurring of the boundaries between data and software. Kind of what's what's exciting you the most when you, you think about what lies ahead for, for the industry and for, for your company as well?
1: Yes, what excites us is what challenges us also. And um, I would reverse a little bit your, your question, if I may, or, or at least change it. Because for me, AI uh, and the blurring between data and software are absolutely fundamental, but they are the background. They are tools which allow you to do something. I think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that what we're trying to do is to resolve uh, problems and provide opportunities for our clients in capital markets and treasury in general. There already, you do have a lot of changes. Why is that? Simply because uh, our view is that the way financial institutions in general operate in capital markets today is suboptimal and it's still fragmented uh, to a large extent. It is not flexible, so it doesn't allow them to evolve uh, quickly. And this evolution is a huge challenge for most financial institutions, which keep piling up old stuff, which becomes legacy. And at some point in time, they have to clean it rather than make it evolve. And finally, there's a cost issue. Of course, all these topics are linked. The cost of uh, doing uh, businesses in capital markets today is way too high for financial institutions. Back before the crisis in 2008, and eight nine, it was sort of justified because the revenues were growing faster. It's no longer the case. It doesn't mean that the market is not enticing. You still have growth and you still have good perspectives, but you cannot keep piling up costs coming from regulations, from old technology, Uh, from convergence and from the like, uh, while having uh, revenue growth, which is uh, modest. So fundamentally, what is this telling us? Could say that, oh, you know, the market is not sustainable. Lots of people, lots of institutions will exit. We don't believe it's the case. It's extraordinary to see that even though a lot of complicated products uh, are gone now, you know, all the complex derivatives from the heydays, still, The spectrum of uh, products, you know, of payoffs of products across asset classes is huge. So even if you see a tier three bank, they need to have access to this palette of products for their corporate clients, their wealth management clients, or their uh, internal asset managers, or the individuals that uh, that they serve. And so it's not an option for a bank to say, I'm going to exit. You know, some of them do it. Sometimes they come back. Some of them go to white labeling, sort of. But then very often they try to come back on certain products. So the fact that they need to manage a full value chain of producing and distributing and risk managing capital markets product is a certainty. And the cost of it is too high. And mm. so the fundamental question for us is, what does it mean? You know, what are the options? How will capital markets evolve? What will they be like in 10 years? And based on that, what are the bets that we take? And so it is absolutely essential for somebody with an industrial mind to have an opinion on that. And then based on that, you have lots of means. Obviously, artificial intelligence is a fantastic uh, means, you know. Obviously, the way you provide software as a service uh, with a mix of data. Obviously, the way you exploit this, this enormous power that cloud could give you if you're well adapted to it. All of these are means which are essential. But the first thing it's not how you do it. The first thing is what exactly do you want to do? And that's the most challenging topic for us, for our competitors, and for IT within our clients.
0: No, you put it well. You put it well. I, I think it's a it's a particular challenge for us as well at the moment, because I guess from the conversations we have in the market, it's not even clear to me that the current incumbents in a lot of those banks, in a lot of those seats themselves necessarily have a tremendous strong handle on exactly where things may go in the next five, six, seven, eight years. I think we may have had a period where a lot of the changes have been an incremental evolution and people have understood. And right now we just see a wide spectrum of people either, hey, this is just another incremental change or, hey, the demands we're going to have are going to be completely different. And so it's it's probably equally exciting and challenging as you try and figure some of that stuff out.
1: Absolutely. If you want... I'll come back to something you said, which is very interesting, where you mentioned the fact that incumbents don't have necessarily the answers. I would argue that they could have the answers better than newcomers, but they don't necessarily put the means uh, behind it. Uh, I'll give you an example, uh, which was uh, very impressive, or at least impressed me personally in a field which is uh, totally different. Look at Microsoft, which at some point was a company that was sort of aging. You know, in the sight of uh, candidates and the market in general. And look how they reinvented themselves based on the position they had and products they had. So based on information they had as incumbents. And that was extremely impressive. Now, of course, it's normal to see it. Everybody has digested it. But when you think of the effort that they did and the strategic choices that they took, you have this kind of transformation. Now, it is true that with most uh, uh, IT companies in capital markets there are a few exceptions but it is true that you don't have that. It is true that uh, you see very often that they have a current business model which works and they extrapolate so they squeeze it a little bit, they adjust it, they oil it, they push it, they sell it better but they're not necessarily saying what's going to be the story in a a few years and um, there are lots of reasons for that. Some of the reasons is that you're not necessarily rewarded financially for something like that. And second is that if your term is a six year, five year, three year term, you cannot think this way because these are investment over 15 years. Uh, there are investments which go beyond you know, my tenure as CEO. Or, uh, so you have to be at the same time a little bit crazy and a little bit not too much attached to the model, which apparently maximizes uh, your NPV financially, in order to do something like that, and it's essential. You know, it's absolutely essential for this business.
0: It's interesting. Let me go there because I think there's often been these challenges of what's the right ownership structure. Some of the biggest companies, whether they're publicly listed, privately owned, and we've seen many of the companies that were publicly listed come private to go through big transformations that public markets couldn't handle. Many peers who sell software into the financial services sector, are obviously private equity-owned, it's a model that's been pushed incredibly hard. You guys are relatively unique, right? Success and have not gone down that, that path. Talk to me a little bit around how you've made that decision, what kind of benefits, trade-offs you've faced as you've charted that path.
1: Yeah, let me comment a little bit on your question before uh, I answer specifically to us. I'm not sure that it's necessarily a question of regime you know listed uh, private equity or fully private I think it's more a matter of the mentality of the of the company you know are you are you sort of product based if you're product-based, you're in a cycle where you keep thinking about improving you know, your product and your services all the time. Uh, look at a few different regimes of the of Apple, you know, another company. Uh, I, I cite these because everybody knows them, but you have that in much smaller companies also. Uh, there was a time where at some point in time, they had lost track of uh, you know, this product dimension. And then another time where they came back to this product dimension. It changes completely the view of the company and the investors follow. You know, investors are not stupid in a certain way. Uh, if they have at the helm uh, a company or a management team, which is uh, long-term oriented, they love it also. Of course, they put a little bit more pressure. Of course, there's a balance to to, to discuss, but I'm not sure that... Uh, it is only uh, the ownership of the structure of the company which guides uh, whether it's going to be long-term or not. It has to be fundamentally a belief. On our side, I don't think, and I will not say that what we did is unique and, and better than anything else, because had we had professional um, investors one way or the other through listed or private, maybe we would have been a little bit faster to develop. Uh, maybe we would have taken a little bit more risks when we were smaller uh, because we didn't take a lot of risk financially we take a lot of uh, risks from an industrial point of view and and there's where we found that our current functioning was useful because um, if we have an idea regarding a long term development we almost don't need to build a business case around it you know it doesn't sound very professional what i say uh, but the thing is that um, when you think too long term uh, a business case is usually not what is going to happen so you have to be able to iterate you know you have to be you cannot be blind either but you have to be able to iterate and it's true that in our environment you know when you you know your business you know the environment you're more comfortable taking an important risk for the corporation than you would have had in in another setup. Um, But I I don't think, once again, that there is a magical formula. Uh, Even if you forget about, you know, whatever the structure of the capital, I think it is essential to have uh, an industrial view. And I think that uh, if one thing we sort of learned in all these decades, and we had no clue initially, is that software development is a heavy industry. You know, it's not uh, not, uh, a game for a few quants developing something quickly on the side as it used to be in the beginning of our business.
0: Interesting. Interesting. That point on industrial risk versus financial risk, I think that's a really powerful one and one that probably is... uh... In my own exposure, I've probably been a bit underweight uh, the industrial risk exposure, and 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 we're usually spending a lot of time in situations where it is very financially risk driven. That's a really important reflection. I'm I'm going to pull you up on a few more of those. Actually, I guess one of the things we like to do there are there are people out there right now, much earlier on in their journeys, building products, trying to develop companies. I guess. Um, any other guidance you'd give uh, to those who are trying to break into the space, scale up the company, evaluate their kind of early early investment uh, options? Any other guidance you'd give having three decades down the line for the next generation who are trying to get going in the space?
1: Yes, maybe a few. I think the first one is, uh, but that's natural when a company starts, is to look at the solution of the future, not at the past. You have still lots of companies which try to take uh, assets of or way of working from the past and adapt them. Um, I think when you're starting, it's a mistake. You have to take a bet on the way capital markets will be, not the way they were. That's number one. Number two, I think that um, the most difficult for a company which starts Is to know how to scale. Uh, We had this problem, of course, but we had more time uh, because when we were small, there were very few companies in our space, and uh, we had the luxury to grow slowly. And uh, if you want to bootstrap internally and to grow organically, today, uh, if you are a very good uh, startup in capital markets or elsewhere, um, it is very tempting to develop a narrow business, and then to sell to a big one. It's already a good success, and it happens in technology in general. It's not only in capital markets. It's already a good success. But the point is that if you have a view uh, for something which is wider than this specific function that you built, you have to find the right partners to allow you to give you these five to seven years, which are essential to build uh, a solution which is wider. And in which case it is important to stay in control. It is important to uh, focus uh, on the IP and the products and to get help uh, from the whole ecosystem in order to accelerate whatever you do. And it's important to make this choice. I think that if a startup has a very good idea on a certain functionality, but not necessarily on a piece of the value chain, on a sizable piece of the value chain, better develop quickly and sell without a doubt. But if you have ideas behind it uh, in order to be able to disrupt an important piece of the value chain, that's where I think it's an illusion to think that you can do everything in in a couple of years. It's classical in technology. They're very Mm. bright people. They can do everything quickly. The start is very fast and then it slows down. But that's when you need help. That's where you need, uh, to to find assistance in order to get to the uh, to the next stage and it's a very delicate uh, part with very bright people you have you have stacks of them in capital market people who can take an idea and go very fast and develop it uh, when it comes to building a business around it it is more complicated because it takes a collection of skills
0: interesting very interesting about, to hear you. Use the words you know, luxury to grow slowly. It feels like we're in an era now where everything is about speed, absolutely, and quality and caliber is associated with with speed. Uh, and, and actually, your point around narrow versus broad solutions, allowing things to kind of take its time. I, I think that's something that's a little bit lost in the current mindset. So I think that's a really, really powerful reflection. I'm going to take you back to something you said at the outset. You, you, you talked about the start of your journey, there, there being a gold rush that, was, that was, was taking place. If you were to do it all again, you look like you're fit and young as it is in mindset. If you were to leave Murex behind and you were to start something from scratch today, like where are the gold rushes that you see? What are the areas that you'd be drawn to if you were to uh, have another crack at things?
1: I'm going to answer you, but I wouldn't say it's a gold rush. It's a, it's a potential gold rush because, you know, the gold hasn't appeared yet. I think that um today uh, once again, the exercise of uh, creating financial products, pricing them, uh doing risk management around them uh and uh, settling them, funding them, and all this stuff is expensive for most financial institutions. I think that an important element of the next decade is going to uh to be that this value chain is going to be to some extent dismantled and parts will become mutualized or managed by other companies on behalf of many financial institutions. That's not new. You know, you look at uh, data, for instance, you already have a lot of that. You look at Bloomberg, you look at uh, things that market uh, done, you know, you look even on the technology side, on the buy side, you look at BlackRock, you have quite a bit of that. Um, And I think that there will be an acceleration uh, in this direction. So, uh, Uh, The reality is that uh, it's difficult for a newcomer to enter into this space because it's a space of um, uh, infrastructure in a way. So it takes a lot of investment. It takes an enormous amount of investment. Newcomers will be better off in specific functions which are narrow. You know, certain types of calculations or uh, certain types of, uh, I would say, complex post-trade processes uh, or the like. And this is where coming back to my point uh, from before, they will have to decide when they have succeeded, if that's all what they do uh, and they sell it off, or if there is uh, a model to extend. But uh, taking a piece of the infrastructure uh, on behalf of many financial institutions is a very expensive, very capital extensive uh, operation. And I think uh, there's where I see a gold rush am hesitant to call it a gold rush because the gold rush in the '90s was, you know, you could almost run anywhere and plant, <laughs> and you, you would, you know, you would have buyers because everybody was developing this activity. Yeah. Today, it's more, um, if you want, a forced and accelerated industrialization of what has become uh, a necessity, you know, to to power uh, the global economy. It's as if instead of uh, industrializing um, the car uh, factories over 60 years uh, you had to do it in in 10-15 years uh, that's the way it feels but it doesn't feel as in the same case as today uh you know building a new car uh it, it's not a gold rush because yeah. you know it's already crowded so you have to come up with a different angle
0: oh it's fascinating it's fascinating it's definitely something that's feels like needs to be done or worth
1: worth leaning leaning into um I'm going
0: to change tact slightly um, so when we were starting to profile this whole financial infrastructure technology and software space, we started mapping out the big publicly listed the big privately owned companies and it shouldn't be a surprise, but it always comes as a surprise how u s dominated it is and in in terms of both the privately owned and publicly listed providers, we often get asked as well, like what should policymakers in Europe be doing to kind of ensure their 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 helping seed and create the next batch of, of European champions. I, I asked that as you're the helm of one of the European champion names out there. Have you, have you got reflections on what should and could be happening to make sure the next generation of companies on the continent, again, their, their fair share of their fair chance at making a success of things?
1: Yes, unfortunately, there's no silver bullet. It's a collection of things. You see, the U.S. start with is a huge, homogeneous market. Uh, Europe is still not a huge homogeneous market and, you know, even less so since the Brexit. Um, so if you want the temptation to start uh, in the U.S. Uh, is, is absolutely enormous. Number two, the relation, uh, you know, between uh, universities and the whole uh, ecosystem of startup is very strong. Number three, the ecosystem, the funding ecosystem is normalized and super deep. Uh, you have people who can back you at any stage what you do, and it's all very well formalized. Uh, and uh, it's great if you succeed. It's not a catastrophe if you fail. You just move yeah. on to something different. And all of this is um, is not it exists in Europe, but is not necessarily homogeneous. Uh, you take uh, Sweden, uh, you have f- very good pockets of innovation or other countries in the Nordics. You take France, you have certain efforts uh, which are done uh, around uh, IP. Uh, you take, but if you want, first, it's not consistent across countries. Mm-hmm. And second, it's not uh, necessarily consistent in time. Take, for instance, I'm talking about France because our largest uh, R&D center is sitting there. Very good measures which were taken on, Macron first presidency, maybe next time there will be somebody else who is going to wipe them away. So you would have had that for six, seven years. And practically, you could argue that it helped a lot IP, and I do. So other people could say, yeah, but you know, you're giving advantages to companies based on IP, so it's not egalitarian. So you see that uh, fundamentally, you have to have consistency across all of that. You have to put a framework and let companies do their thing. So it's lots of things, if you want, around regulations, around schools, around uh, uh, having a lighter system to create companies, a lighter system to reduce uh, your staff if you need to, to close and reopen, you know, a more uh, formal and general access to funding across all these stages. It's all of that which leads uh, to having this kind of, of power that you feel uh, in, the, uh, in the U.S., Europe is perfectly capable of doing that. You know, it's perfectly capable. It has the talents. There's no, it, it, there were a few years ago, people telling us, ah, how do you do business in France? It's horrible. Well, no, it's not, you know, it's it's different from other countries, but you also have good schools. You, uh, you have uh, good rules, you know, you have to be able to adapt, of course, but no, it's feasible. It's a mistake to think that you yeah. cannot do it, but it's simply that. This lack of consistency makes it a bit of a coincidence when a company does well, rather than something systemic.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's interesting. Your 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 cultural point there around if it doesn't win or it doesn't succeed, you just carry on and move on, and the system allows you to keep innovating. I think that's an that's an interesting point. I, I, a tolerance for failure or just accepting, right? It's part of the course when you're that early stage. Yeah.
1: It's population. much better now here you know it used to be that it was shameful to go bankrupt you know today it's much better but you know in the US you can go bankrupt every other breakfast if you want to and then move on you know it's not a big deal <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. I'm
0: going to step out of the work mode a little bit, take a step out of that. One of the things I ask guests is to just reflect a little bit on what do they do outside of their working time? Is there a hobby or a personal interest of yours that you'd want to share and how that's enabled you to kind of succeed in the day job that you
1: have? I would say not quite a hobby, which are my hobbies are a little bit orthogonal to what I do. It's more a background. I think what helped me is that for my... uh, a chance or the opposite. I don't know. I was born in a very small country, uh, doomed with a civil war and uh, more and the economic crashes and the like. I'm from Lebanon. I lived, um, I studied in France. I studied in the US and I came from this small country, which is open to, to all its neighbors. And um, I think that um, this uh, gave me a taste, more than a possibility, a real taste to discover any place where I set foot and to appreciate very quickly individuals and their culture. And um, I think that this helped us simply do what countries across themselves cannot really do, Uh, which is building uh, an international environment. And we're a small company, we're 63 nationalities within uh, the company with very strong uh, ties, which are, uh, if you want the company values, but massively different backgrounds. And if you want this pleasure that I had to discover other places coming very likely from my background. Uh, we all transported it in the company and we have the same uh, pleasure every, we even track the nationalities, you know, and when there's a new one, we celebrate. And I think it's fantastic because our luck is that finance is the same everywhere. Obviously, you have your odd rules in, uh, you know, in Brazil or in certain countries in uh, in Southeast Asia, but fundamentally 95% of it is exactly the same. And so it is transportable. And what's left is the uh, uh, the human factor uh, in a certain way. And to add to that, although obviously we have a passion for what we do in capital markets, the passion for uh, people is uh, possibly even stronger, at least for me. And I think that it's a little bit this background which helped a lot uh, with that.
0: I love it. I love it. I mean, that, probably power of that can't be understated, right? I often see how technologists used to be kind of dare I say it, second rate? sit in some of the banks where the stars are the share of the traders. So you know, giving them that belonging, that identity, celebrating people probably before it was a mainstream idea. It must have been a great, great talent magnet for you and the company. So thank you for sharing that. Well, look, Maroon, thank you so much for being generous with your time. It's been a privilege and a pleasure to kind of go down those three decades from gold rush to where you are now and thinking about the future. There's definitely a few pearls of wisdom from uh The luxury to grow slowly. Industrial risk versus financial risk for us to kind of all reflect on. So thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with us and uh, wish you a good day.
1: The pleasure was mine. Thank you very much, Ethan. Thank you,
0: Maroon.